0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Good morning. Good morning. If you've got your Bibles there, please go ahead and open them up to Numbers chapter 20. It's the last time you're in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 20. And just to let you know where we're going as a church, we're going to be starting a new series next week with Pastor Robbie. Looking at Matthew 25, it's going to be an important series for our church, so please stay tuned. But today, we're going to be in Numbers chapter 20, and we're we'll going to be looking at an incident called the, um, the waters of Meribah. The waters of Meribah. And as you turn to Numbers chapter 20, you might see a, a sort of a subtitle there that says uh, the waters of Meribah. That means uh, the waters of quarreling. And today we're going to focus in on one individual in this text, and it's Moses. Now Moses has a real special place in my heart personally. I just I love Moses. I love learning about Moses. And it's because Moses was this man who had such great faith. He was a man whose eyes were truly fixed on the Lord. I mean, consider how Hebrews 11 says, Uh, describes Moses, the faith of Moses. Look what it says. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up. So if you're not familiar with the story of Moses, Moses was born during a persecution. And to keep him alive, to keep him safe, his mother placed him in a basket into the Nile River and he floated down the river and and his sister kind of followed along in the reeds making sure he was going to be okay and he floated all the way to Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter picked him up out of the river And named him Moses, that means out of the water, and she took him in as her own. And so Moses grew up in the court and the palace of Pharaoh as Egyptian royalty. Notice this. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, that means when he was about 40 years old, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So at age 40, his life takes this 180 degree turn. He rejects all things Egypt, He he has an exodus from Egypt that takes place in his heart. He rejects the treasure and the wealth and the power and all of it, and he chooses this. He chooses rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He looks at all that he has in Egypt, and he says, it's fleeting. It's fleeting. He rejects it, and he chooses to suffer with the people of God. Now, why would he do that? Let's look at the next verse, verse 26. He considered, that means he waited out. He considered the reproach of Christ. That means suffering for the sake of God's name. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So let's look at some Moses math. Moses math 101 up on the screen. So here's the equation in Moses' mind. Suffering for God. Suffering for the sake of his name is greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. So how does that make any sense at all? Well, let's continue with the rest of verse 26. Here's how it it makes sense. Look, look, he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. So Moses Math 201, there's a broader equation, the reward of God for obedience which for Moses is going to require a great deal of suffering. The reward of God for obedience in his mind is worth more, greater worth, greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. And that's a lot of treasure. So what then is this reward? It must be pretty good, huh? Well, let's look at verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So verse 26, he's looking to the reward. Verse 27, he's looking to God. He's looking to the reward. He's looking to God. He's, what is this reward? Well, the Bible talks a lot about heavenly reward and mentions different kinds of rewards for obedience. Things like crowns or authority. But ultimately, the greatest reward of God is this. It's God himself. The greatest reward of God is God himself. And all other rewards like crowns or authority or whatever God chooses to reward his people with will never, ever, ever be an end in themselves. Simply possessing a crown or possessing authority is not the reward. The reward, rather, is using the crown or using the authority to worship the Lord and to maximize our enjoyment of Him forever. That's the purpose of heavenly reward. I mean, consider, consider the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 4. They're on on 24 thrones, and they've been given these crowns. Notice what they're doing with their crowns, Revelation chapter 4. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Notice this. They cast their crowns before the throne. They're They're not holding up their crowns and worshiping their crowns. They're using their crowns to worship God heavenly rewards I used to worship God and and maximize our enjoyment of him forever. And as Moses looked to the reward of Jesus Christ, he was filled with faith and walked in a radical obedience. A radical obedience. I mean, consider what Moses did. By faith, he obeyed God and he left Egypt. And where'd he go? He went into the wilderness and he lived there for 40 years as a shepherd from the palace to the wilderness as a shepherd waiting on the Lord 40 years. How'd he do it? How do he endure? Here's how by looking to the reward, by keeping his eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. And then after 40 years in the wilderness. God spoke to Moses out of a burning bush and commanded him to go back to Egypt and to lead his people out. So by faith, Moses obeyed. He went back to Egypt and he led God's people out to where? Back into the wilderness again. And he led God's people faithfully in the wilderness for another 40 years That's 80 years of faithfulness in the wilderness. How did he do it? How did he endure? Here's how. By looking to the reward. By keeping his eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Moses was a man who kept his eyes on the Lord. Question, does that describe you? And does that describe me? Are you and I persevering in obedience, in our Christian lives, by looking to the reward, by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, by, by meditating on and thinking about and memorizing verses in the Bible that tell us what it's going to be like to be in his presence forever. Verses like this. Psalm 16, verse 11, on the screen. Now here's a verse that is on this screen a lot. And there's a good reason for that. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Are we we looking to Jesus Christ? Are we considering this fullness of joy that will be in his presence? At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Moses said the pleasures of Egypt are fleeting. I'm going for the pleasures that are forever. Are we looking to Jesus Christ? Or how about Revelation 21? Revelation 21, this is new heavens, new earth. Jesus Christ at the center of the heavenly Jerusalem. Look how he's described. And the city has no need of sun or moon. Don't need the sun. No need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. Its lamp is Jesus Christ. Are we we considering this? Are we thinking of it? Are we looking to Jesus Christ? He's going to be shining brighter than the sun, brighter than any star at the center of the heavenly Are we looking to him? Or how about uh, Revelation 22? Revelation 22. And night will be no more... And they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever and ever. Are we looking? Are we looking to Jesus Christ? Are we considering him? Ask yourself, am I persevering in my Christian life by keeping my eyes on the reward, Jesus Christ? Because this is something we must do. I'm just, I'm seeing this in a whole new way in my own life. I must keep my eyes on Jesus Christ. We need to get our eyes on Jesus Christ and then keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. We must do this one thing because when our eyes are on the Lord, here's the first thing that will happen. This is point number one. You can jot this down. I will face trials with faith. When my eyes are on the Lord, I will face trials with faith. Have a look with me at Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. Here we go. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. Now, 40 years earlier, the the people of Israel were in this exact same place. They were in Kadesh, right at the edge of the promised land, ready to go in. God promised them, here's the land I'm going to give to you, and I'm going to take care of all your enemies. All you need to do is go in. All you need to do is trust me. And so at the command of Moses, at the command of God to Moses, Moses sent in 12 spies into the land to survey it, to check it out. Two of the spies came back filled with faith, saying, let's go in. The Lord will surely do it. Let's go. Ten of the spies came back filled with unbelief, saying, we can't do it. The people are too strong for us. And their message of unbelief infected the congregation. And unbelief and fear spread like wildfire throughout the people of God. And they rebelled against the Lord. And they refused to go in. They refused. So here's how God responded to their rebellion up on the screen. God said this. But as for you, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. God said to them, because you refuse to believe, because you refuse to go in, then go wander until you die. I'll bring your children in. And so now after 40 long years of wandering in this wilderness, now the first generation has all but died off, and now they are back here again in the exact same place at Kadesh, right on the edge of the promised land, waiting on the command of God to go in. Have a look with me again at verse 1. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. So as they get to Kadesh, Moses faces his first trial, and in chapter 20, his sister Miriam dies. This was, this was his sister who, who was in the reeds watching him all the way to Pharaoh's daughter. This is, this is Miriam who approached Pharaoh's daughter and made arrangements with her so that Moses' mother could still care for him in his youth. This is Miriam, his friend, his faithful companion who had been at his side all these 40 years in the wilderness as they get to the edge of the promised land again at Kadesh it's there that she dies so we're not told what kind of impact this had on Moses but this would have been a very significant loss for him and in his grief, in his pain look what happens next verse 2 And there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. So the people are facing a significant trial of their own. There's no water. They're in a wilderness. There's no water. This is a a big deal. They're thirsty. They start to panic. And so here's what they do. They assemble together together. Now, we're not told how many assembled. The whole congregation would have been over 2 million people. I mean, consider 2 million people in a wilderness. So it's not likely that all of them assembled, but probably several thousand assembled for this one reason, to attack Moses. Here's their message to him. Moses, it would be better for us to be dead than to have to go through this thirst right now. Moses, we wish, we all wish we were dead. And you know what? You brought us here. This is your fault. It's your fault we're suffering like this. Now, is that true? Is it Moses' fault? I mean, if, it's, if there's anyone whose fault it's not, it's Moses. Whose fault is it that they're in the wilderness? It's their parents' fault. It's the first generation. If they, would have, if they would have gone in, if they would have trusted God, they'd be in the promised land right now, but they're not. And so they're blaming Moses. Question, how do you typically respond when someone blames you for something that is not your fault? How do you typically respond when someone blames you for something that's not your fault? Are you quick to retaliate? Are you quick to jump to your own defense or maybe even attack them back? Look how Moses responds in verse 6. Verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. So what does Moses do when he's attacked? What does he he do when he's blamed for something that's not his fault? Here's what he does. He goes to God and he falls on his face. Now notice how God responds to Moses falling on his face. Have a look again at verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, notice this, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And so Moses, he's he's facing this trial with faith. I mean, his 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 eyes are on the Lord. He's a man whose whose eyes are just fixed on the Lord, and because his eyes are on the Lord, when the trial hits, he goes to God. Because his eyes are on the Lord, when the trial hits, he goes to God and God meets with him. The glory of God appears to him and God gives him three specific commands. Take the staff, assemble the people, tell the rock to yield its water. Moses, if you do that, here's what's going to happen. Verse 8, so you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation. And so God tells Moses, Moses, you do the obedience, I'll do the miracle. Moses, you do the obedience, and then I'll do the miracle. Now, there's something in human beings that just crave awe. We just love to see Ah, This is why thousands of people will gather together several times a year to look up in the sky and watch fireworks. Wow, Ah, This is why thousands of people gather together every weekend and go to movie theaters. We want to see explosions and special effects. So tell me, how would you like to have a front row seat to watch God make a river explode out of a rock face for two million thirsty people? Because this is what Moses is about to see. So consider it, consider it. Five minutes ago, five minutes ago, Moses was at the center of a crisis that he could not fix. But now, now he's about to watch God do something amazing. How did he get from there, the crisis, to here? About to watch God do something amazing. Here's how. He faced his trial with faith. Because he had his eyes on the Lord. When the trial hit, he took it to God. And we will do the same thing if we are a people who have our eyes on the Lord. Look what Peter says about facing our trials with faith up on the screen. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Notice, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And so often in our lives, a trial enters in. This is not, I can't untie. And, and what am I, how am I going to fix this? And, and I just can't untie this. And, and as we try to fix it, the anxiety starts to rise and rise and rise. And what am I going to do? And God's like, look up, look up. Cast that problem. Cast that trial on to me. And so that's what we do. We, we cast that onto the Lord. And we say, God, just have your way with that situation. I can't fix that. Please just do whatever's good. Do whatever's best. Do whatever's going to bring you the most glory. Amen. I'm just gonna leave that with you. We walk away. But if you're anything like me, five minutes later, you're, you're running back. And you're saying, oh, what am I going how, how to fix this? And you're examining every angle. And, and what am I going to do? I can't untie this. And God says, look up, look up. Lay that down. Cast that on me again. God, just have your way with that situation. I don't know what to do, but I'm just going to trust you with that. Do whatever's best. Amen. And a growing faith looks like maybe I'm I'm picking that thing up every five minutes, but then I'm picking it up every 15 minutes, and I'm picking it up every couple hours, and I'm picking it up every couple of days, and then maybe a couple of times a month, and then I can't remember the last time I picked that up. Question. What is the trial in your life? that you need to cast before the Lord today and just trust him with? What is the trial? What is the situation that you need to cast before the Lord today and just trust him with? Because listen, he cares for you. He loves you perfectly. And he's calling us today to look up. To look to Him, to take our trials to Him, and to trust Him to do what is good and to do what is best. When my eyes are on the Lord, I will face trials with faith. But that's not all I'll do. Because when my eyes are on the Lord, I'll also do this. This is point number two. You could jot this down. I will face opposition with obedience. I will face opposition with obedience. Have a look again at verse 9. Verse 9. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. So because Moses has his eyes on the Lord, when God gives him a command, he does it. Because he's he's looking to the Lord and God tells him what to do, he does what God says. So he takes the staff. And then he assembles all the people together. He says, hey, whoever's thirsty, come to this rock. Whoever's thirsty among you, come to the rock. And how many are thirsty? Everyone, everyone. So you've got over 2 million people coming out of the woodwork, gathering together at this rock with all of their animals as well. And as this crowd starts to form, this crowd that is opposing Moses, that is furious with him, that is blaming him for their thirst, something begins to shift in his heart. As he looks out upon the crowd, something begins to change in his heart. And it's at that moment that he then opens up his mouth. Look at verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Now, God commanded Moses to speak to the rock. But Moses is now speaking to the people. And he's not really speaking to the people. He is is rebuking the people. He's yelling at them. He's calling them rebels. And he's telling them what he's going to do. How he's going to bring water out of the rock. He's not pointing at God. He's talking about what he's going to do. Notice now what he does in verse 11. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. He's like, hey, you guys are thirsty? You're thirsty, you rebels, you're thirsty? You want some water? I'll give you some water. Takes a staff, just smashing the rock. It's like someone who loses all control, just starts yelling at everyone around him, turns around and punches a wall. This is Moses' heart right now. He's filled with anger. So what on earth is going on? How did Moses get to this place? Here's how it's not complicated. He took his eyes off of the Lord and he placed them on these people who are opposing him. Kind of reminds me of Peter walking on the water. Jesus commands him to walk on a storm. And so Peter has his eyes on the Lord, and so he gets out of the boat, and he's walking on the storm. He's doing well. He's walking on the storm because his eyes are on the Lord, but then he begins to look down at the storm, and he begins to sink. Likewise, Moses, Moses, faithfully leading God's people, looking to the Lord. He's doing well, but in this moment, he looks down at the people, and he sinks like a stone into anger and disobedience. And how easy is it for this to happen to you and I? How easy is it? Someone says something hurtful to us. Someone says something offensive to us. Someone says something rude to us. How easy is it for us to get our eyes off of the Lord and then onto that person? And they become our focus. And anger starts to rise up. And bitterness begins to set in. And that's when the heart becomes hard. And there's been several times in my life where someone has said something to me and I get offended by that and start replaying that situation over and over and over and over and over. In my mind, I'm telling you that it's a one-way ticket to bitterness and hardness of heart. And so what should we do then when people oppose us? Well, if our eyes are on the Lord then we'll, we'll face that opposition with obedience. And when people oppose us, they're rude to us. Then, then we will seek to love them back. We will seek to bless them. We will return uh, good for evil. But what if we don't have our eyes on the Lord? What if, what if our eyes are off the Lord? Then what? Well, here's what we must do. Step one, look up. Look up. That's step number one. Look up. Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Like what? Like Jesus Christ. Like Jesus Christ. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp its lamp is Jesus Christ. Look up. When, when people are opposing you and your eyes are on the Lord, step one. Look up. Look up. And then this. Forgive. Forgive. Jesus said this in Mark 11. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. In light of how much we have been forgiven, we must forgive. When someone opposes you, look up. Remember Jesus Christ. Look to him. Forgive. And then this. Bless. Bless. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing, that you may obtain a reward. And so what should we do when someone opposes us? Here's what we should do. Look up, forgive, bless. Look up, forgive, bless. Look up. Because when our eyes are on the Lord, We will face opposition with obedience. And that leads us to our final point. Third thing that will happen as we keep our eyes on the Lord is this. You could jot this down too. When my eyes are on the Lord, point number three, I will face consequences with hope. I will face consequences with hope. Now notice. Notice how God initially responds to Moses' sin. Verse 11. Have a look at verse 11. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. Now notice this. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. So even though Moses sins in this way, God still does the miracle. He still provides water to everyone. And we're not talking about a little bit of water. Verse 11 says, water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. So we're talking about a massive amount of water. Water erupts out of this rock face, enough for two million people and all of their livestock. And so here's what this is called. Ready? Grace. This is called grace. No one in that congregation, including Moses, deserved this water, and yet God provided it for them anyway. It's called grace. Question. Are you someone, are you a person who is constantly amazed by the grace of God upon your life? Am I a person who's constantly amazed by the grace of God upon my life? Are we amazed? Are we amazed that even though we keep sinning against him, he does not abandon us and he does not stop loving us? And he doesn't stop providing for us. He gives and he gives and he gives and he provides and he provides and he provides everything we need every day. We don't deserve any of it. Are we amazed by the grace of God upon our lives or are we taking God's grace for granted? Do we ever just stop, just consider that everything we have has come from his hand, everything, all of it, do we ever just stop and say, Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for water? Thank you for clean water that I can take a few steps and flick a switch and have clean water. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Because in this moment, the people of Israel know exactly where their water came from it came from God, and they are thankful. And now that God has done this miracle for his people, he now turns all of his attention on Moses. Look at verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me. Now notice what God is doing here. He's exposing the root issue behind Moses' anger. He's exposing what's underneath his anger. He's exposing the root of it, and it's this, unbelief. It's unbelief, and so what's unbelief? Unbelief is this. Unbelief is taking our eyes off of the Lord and living and acting as though he's not holy. Unbelief is when we take our eyes off the Lord and we begin to live and act as though he's not holy. You're living as though God is not who he says he is. Living as though God is not perfect in wrath, and not perfect in anger, and in justice, and in love, and grace, and mercy, and power, and goodness. It's living as though he is not our creator. Living as though he's not the greatest treasure in the whole universe. Living as though his promises are not true, and his grace is not sufficient, and his commands are not good. That's unbelief. It's taking our eyes off of the Lord and living as though he's not holy, not perfect, not enough, and not worthy of our obedience. And this is the root of Moses' anger. It's unbelief. His eyes are not on the Lord. And because his eyes are not on the Lord, his heart has spiraled into this horizontally focused, person-fixated, angry chaos. It's like a a row of dominoes. When you hit the first one, they all start to fall. When the first domino is unbelief, every other sin starts to fall, including the sin of anger. So question, question. Where exactly is unbelief pressing in upon our hearts and lives? Where is unbelief pressing in upon our hearts and lives? Is it, what are, you, what are you struggling to believe about God? Is it, is it that he, he really is good? Really? Is it that he really is in control of the circumstances in my life? Is it that he really does love me perfectly? Is it that he really is enough for me? Is it that he really is with me here right now? Ask yourself, what am I struggling to believe about God? Because listen, listen, part of growing in our Christian lives is wrestling with our doubts. Part of growing in our Christian lives is wrestling with our doubts, but here's the question. The question is this, am I taking my doubts to the Lord Am I wrestling through my doubts with my eyes on him, or am I just giving myself over to unbelief? Because if I'm just giving myself over to unbelief, not only is that going to create chaos in my own heart, it's also going to greatly affect all of those around me as well. And notice the effect that Moses' unbelief has had upon the congregation. Look at verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, notice, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. God's saying to Moses, because because your eyes are not on me, Moses, you're acting as though I'm not holy, and you've done it in front of everyone. Everyone. Now there's a saying it goes something like this: uh, Actions speak louder than what does it say? Words. Actions speak louder than words, right? And that's especially true if you're a Christian. Because as soon as you tell someone you're a Christian, as soon as someone finds out you're a Christian, what do they start to do? They start to watch your life, don't they? They start to watch you. They start to listen to what you say. They start to watch how you act. They begin to put your life under a microscope. And the way we live will communicate to them something about God. Let me ask you, who is watching your life? Who is watching your life? If you have children, ask yourself, does does the tone I take with them, does the way I interact with them, does the way I live my life before them say to them that God is holy? If you're you're married, ask yourself, uh, does does the tone I take with my spouse, does does the way I interact with them, does the way I'm living my life before them, is it saying to them that God is holy? Think about extended family members, or your friends, or people at your school, or, or coworkers, or your neighbors. Is my life, are my actions saying to them that God is Holy. Because in Moses' life, in this moment, his actions are saying to the congregation that God is not holy. So how does God respond to this? Look again at verse 12. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore, therefore, You shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. Moses has publicly sinned against the Lord. And God says, now as a consequence of that, you're not going into the promised land. If you're anything like me, maybe you're thinking, well, it seems kind of harsh. Doesn't that seem kind of harsh? I mean, this is Moses, faithful servant of God. And he messes up one time and he can't go in? But you know what? That's just exposing a problem with my theology. R.C. Sproul says this about sin up on the screen. Look what he says. We soon forget... That with our first sin, we have forfeited all rights to the gift of life. That's a theology corrector. We soon forget that with our first sin, we have forfeited all rights to the gift of life. That I am drawing breath this morning is an act of divine mercy. God owes me nothing. I owe him everything. If he allows a tower to fall on my head this afternoon, I cannot claim injustice. so quick self assessment is my view of sin biblical is my view of sin biblical romans 323 says that the wages of sin is death do i really believe that do i really believe that to sin against god is the very definition of evil because here's the truth If Moses really received what he deserves for this sin, he would fall down dead and then fall straight into hell. And the same is true for us. And so why isn't Moses receiving what he deserves? Why aren't we receiving what we deserve? One reason, Jesus Christ The only reason you and I and Moses are not receiving what we deserve right now is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because apart from the cross, apart from the cross, there is only wrath for us all. Apart from the cross, there is no hope. But 2,000 years ago, all of the sin of everybody here who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ was transferred from us to Christ on the cross by God. And all the wrath that we deserve for our sin and all the wrath that Moses deserves for his sin was poured out upon Jesus Christ on that cross in full. And if you are here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, listen, he is the answer. He is the answer. He is your answer. And right now, he is extending his arms to you, ready to receive you. If you will just turn from your sin and bow the knee to him and and believe in your heart that he is the son of God who died on the cross and rose again for you. If you believe, there will be no condemnation for you because there is no more condemnation in Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation for us, and there's no condemnation for Moses. But there is still this, consequences. There are still consequences for sin. There's no condemnation for Moses, but there are consequences for his sin. And here's why. God must show the people that he is holy. God must show the people that he takes sin seriously. And just like Moses' sin happened in front of everyone, so will the consequences for his sin happen in front of everyone. Everyone will know that Moses was not permitted to enter into the promised land because God is holy. But then secondly, there will be consequences for Moses because God loves Moses. God loves Moses. And his love for Moses demands that he discipline Moses as a son. God loves Moses way too much to not lovingly address his sin with fatherly discipline because God is not done with Moses. And maybe you are here today and you are currently experiencing consequences for sin in your life. Listen, if you are in Jesus Christ, you can face those consequences with hope because your story's not over. Your story's not over. God is not done with you. God loves you more than you could ever imagine, and he's training you. He's training us. That's what discipline means. It means training. Hebrews 12, 11 says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have, who have been trained by it. And if you are experiencing the discipline of the Lord upon your life right now, your story is not over. We can face consequences with hope and Moses' story is not over either. Because after the waters of Meribah, Moses got his eyes back on the Lord and he faithfully led God's people. And yes, he was not permitted to enter the promised land. Yes, there were consequences He was not permitted to enter the promised land, but he was permitted to enter the promised land. God took Moses up onto a mountain called Mount Nebo and he showed him uh, the promised land up on the screen. Deuteronomy 34, And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes." But you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And the instant... The lifeless body of Moses fell to the ground. He took his first step into the heavenly promised land because he took his first step into the presence of Jesus Christ. And as he took his first step into the presence of Jesus Christ, the last thing on his mind was the earthly promised land. Because he received his reward, the perfect love and the total security and the breathtaking awe and the overwhelming perfect joy and the all-satisfying pleasure that can only be found in the presence of Jesus Christ. His great faith became sight and he received his reward. And listen, listen, that day is coming for us so soon. It's right around the corner. This day is coming for us so soon, so this is what we must stay focused on. Amen? We must stay focused on our hope, our reward, the Lord Jesus Christ. We must keep our eyes on him.